0: to the 271st of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Pat Carroll and Bob Carroll to talk about primary immunodeficiency disease and COVID-19. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time and many Fridays at 5.30 p.m. Korea Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, May 4th, 2021, there are 3,215,657 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. The death toll in the United States from the disease has now reached 577,571 lives lost. In India, 222,408 people have died from COVID-19 and that's up from 218,959 deaths reported yesterday. In Brazil, 408,829 people have died from COVID-19. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is Clotilda Douglas Yakumchuk, pioneering nurse, dies at 89. This was written by Catherine Q. Seeley and appeared in the New York Times April 30th, 2021. In the early 1950s, When Clotilda Douglas Yakumchuk was one of the few Black people in Nova Scotia, she applied to several nursing schools, but in most cases she did not even receive the courtesy of a reply. Eventually she was admitted to the Nova Scotia Hospital School of Nursing and in 1954 became its first Black graduate. She went on to work as a nurse for the next half century, predominantly in psychiatry. She was also a community activist devoted to social justice the education of Black youth and the well being of older people. Ms. Douglas Yakumchuk died on April 15th at a hospital in Halifax, the capital. She was 89. She had tested positive for COVID 19 just a week before dying of it, her daughter Leslie Douglas Shaw said. In addition to her work as a nurse, Ms. Douglas Yakumchuk was the founding president of the Black Community Development Organization which helped provide housing to low-income people in Nova Scotia. She produced a radio show highlighting Black culture, and she contributed to a book, Reflections of Care, A Century of Nursing in Cape Breton, which appeared in 2006, the proceedings of which created an award for nursing students at Cape Breton University, where she helped push for a nursing program. Along the way, she encountered racial barriers, White patients sometimes refused her care. Though in one case, the patient let her apologize and the two became friends. In Another instance, she had won election as president of the Registered Nurses Association of Nova Scotia, now called the College of Registered Nurses of Nova Scotia, which represents more than 9,000 people in that profession. She was shocked, her daughter said when the runner up, a white woman asked her to step aside so that she could become president instead woman said to mom, it's not your time, Miss Douglas Shaw said, based on her experience as a Black woman in a race-conscious society, my mother sensed it was due to her race. Miss Douglas Yakumchuk refused to step aside and in 1988 became the organization's first and to this day only Black president. Matilda Edessa Coward was born on January 11, 1932, in the Whitney Pier neighborhood of Sydney, Nova Scotia, on the east coast of Cape Breton Island. Her family had settled there because her father, Arthur Reginald Coward, who grew up in Barbados, had answered an ad in 1914 to work in a local steel plant. He quit the plant when he felt discriminated against and started coal delivery and liquor delivery businesses. Her mother, Lillian Gertrude Coward, was a seamstress. After becoming a nurse, Clotilda moved in 1957 with her first husband, Vincent T. Douglas, to his native Grenada, where he practiced law and became a judge. She worked as director of a mental health hospital there. They returned to Nova Scotia in 1966, seeing more work opportunities there, and she resumed work as a nurse. Mr. Douglas died in 1975. When Ms. Douglas Yakumchuk retired in 1994, she was director of education services at the Cape Breton Regional Hospital in Sydney and stayed involved in social justice projects. She married Dan Yakumchuk, a community activist, in 1984, and he died in 2011. In addition to her daughter, Ms. Douglas Shaw, she is survived by two other daughters, Sharon Douglas and Valerie O'Neill, two sons, Carl and Kendrick Douglas, 13 grandchildren, seven great grandchildren, two stepchildren, Dale Ann and Danny Yakumchuk, three half brothers, Reginald Rubin and Cephas Coward, and three half sisters, Cecilia and Clara Coward and Ethel Tomlinson. Ms. Douglas Yakumchuk received many honors, included being appointed a member of the Order of Canada in 2003 and a member of the Order of Nova Scotia in 2018. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today. let me introduce my guests to you. Pat Carroll is a registered respiratory therapist and a registered nurse. She has clinical experience in critical care, emergency trauma nursing, and home health care. And she's taught a variety of health professionals in clinical and classroom settings. Ten years ago, she was diagnosed with primary immune deficiency, which completely changed her life, as well as her husband's. Once she regained her health, she became an active volunteer with the Immune Deficiency Foundation, leading the Get Connected Group in Connecticut. She also became involved with the National Organization for Rare Disease in Connecticut, which has developed a coalition to work on common legislative issues and to make sure that none of their efforts would clash with other groups of people with serious rare diseases. Pat's husband, Bob, Bob Carroll, began his career as a sales representative in technical industrial sales. He was a sales consultant developing innovative marketing techniques in various industries when his company was bought. And all of the sales consultant positions were eliminated. He took this opportunity to take a break and do some substitute teaching to fill his days. A principal where he was substituting asked him to be a one-to-one paraprofessional for a challenging kindergartner entering the school. He agreed and worked with this special little boy, little boy while going to school at night to get his teaching credential. Bob then became the first special ed, vocational ed, transitional planner for an alternative high school that served multiple school districts. He taught life skills, job skills, and prepared students for a future after high school. He retired from teaching three years ago. Pat Carroll and Bob Carroll, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: Thank you. So I'd like to start the way I usually do, just to find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation is looking like there today perhaps what the vaccination situation is looking like there today. Maybe, uh, Pat, would you go first, and then Bob?
1: Well, I have the statistics in front of me that, as of today, we're at a positive test rate of 2.02%, a transmission rate of 098 Um, We have 383 people in the state of Connecticut that are hospitalized, that are down 20 from yesterday, Um, and in total, we've had 339,233 confirmed cases, 8,097 deaths, and 8,658,000 Tests completed.
2: Yeah, Connecticut's uh, been a real proactive state, Scott. We um, we're fortunate in that um, yesterday Connecticut became the first state in the U.S. to have over fifty percent of its adult population vaccinated.
1: Yay!
2: And wow. Connecticut has been very proactive in getting people to get vaccinated. And you know, push the process forward uh we're we're fortunate that we live in a state that's that's been very progressive in that matter, and um having been out quite a bit, so I do the shopping and running around and getting things that um, people have been very good at wearing masks, um, keeping social distance, and just kind of being aware of the situation we're in so that's kind of a state of the state of where we live. So we're very fortunate in that regard.
0: Just follow up on one part of what you're saying there, you know, Connecticut is um, it's, it's part of a, you know, and it's in new England. So there's a lot of States close by. And I've always, when I'm talking with folks who are close to state borders or they're in smaller States, it's always interesting to hear how the States have been coordinating what it means to go from Connecticut to Massachusetts or, Rhode Island or uh, to New York. What's the situation been like there in that regard?
2: Um, Well, that's a good point, Scott. You know, uh, Connecticut being between Boston and New York, um, Connecticut, you know, your biggest city in Connecticut is about 200,000 people. Um, Mm -hmm. We always refer to Connecticut as kind of like the big suburb between Boston and New York. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But um, it's um, New York has... um, has done the best job that they can. Um, they, you know, being as big as they are and the concentration of people in the city, um, I think New York's done a pretty good job of of controlling it as best they can, don't you? Pat? And um, in the
1: beginning, there was a coalition between New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut mm-hmm. because when New York had the first spike in the country, we had that in southwestern Connecticut. As did North Jersey. So those mm-hmm. three governors got together and they closed at the same time. They had the same rules. Um, so this time last year, those three states did everything in lockstep. And what, Mass- oh, Massachusetts mm-hmm. yeah. and Rhode Island were not interested in joining. And in fact, um, last June in Rhode Island, they were stopping people at the border and not mm-hmm. letting us come through on I ninety five. That lasted about twelve hours.
0: <laughs> it's not really sustainable, is it, Bob? You were going to say something. There. Yeah, what I, I was going to
2: say, Scott, is what Pat says is so was so important because, you know, there's so many people that live in the southwest part of Connecticut that would go into New York, and. It was so crucial to have the same rules that, you know, establishments, retail establishments would close at the same time um, that every, but like New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut kept it. So uh, precise because they're such travel between the States so that if someone lived in Connecticut and says, Oh, we'll go to New York because something is open and then come back to Connecticut, Mm -hmm. you know, that could be another transmission of something. So, it was really crucial that they, like Pat said, that all the governors work together, those three. And it, I think it really helped to, you know, start to control the virus.
0: So, just to begin to introduce the, the discussion for today, Pat and Bob as well, you're active in the national organization, the Immune Deficiency Foundation. And you're the leader, Pat, of the Get Connected group of that national organization in Connecticut. And I just want to note um, for people who are watching that the zebras, you call yourself the zebras. (laughs) And and you've got a nice zebra print on there too for those who are listening and not watching. Pat's um, got that. And I wonder if you could tell us, just as we're getting started, why zebras?
1: Because an old medical school um line was always when they're teaching students and they're learning about all these rare diseases they say when you hear hoofbeats think of horses not zebras because meaning if somebody has a sore throat it's probably strep throat it's probably not leukemia but we are the zebras, we are the the rare ones, we are the hoofbeats that are zebras. And that makes it a challenge because physicians don't think about primary immune deficiency as a potential problem in their patients. And we're trying to, to raise awareness.
0: Can you tell us, Just for starting out, what is primary immune deficiency?
1: Primary immune deficiency is diagnosed when a part of your immune system is either missing or it's there, but not functioning. So in my case, all of my numbers look great. When they measured all the different components of my immune system, the numbers are great, but when they gave me a vaccine, a pneumonia vaccine, and then tested my response to it, I only responded to three out of the 21 different antigens that are in the, that vaccine. So my immune system's there, but it just kind of sits around and watches. It doesn't do it too much.
0: And is Other that something? People,
1: they're missing um, okay. the component. So you would measure their blood levels and it would be very low or undetectable, that sort of a thing.
0: And is it a, a wide spectrum of different ways that this manifests itself?
1: They have identified 250 different types of primary immune deficiency. Um, most people have heard of the boy in the plastic bubble, which uh, was a, a boy who had severe combined immune deficiency, which meant that he had no immune, no functioning immune system. Mm-hmm. Now in each of the 50 states before a baby leaves the hospital when it's born, it has a test so that those infants can be identified um, within days of birth. And there are treatments, there are bone marrow transplants, there's genetic therapy. So um, those are children that died before they reached their third or fourth birthday. And now because of the efforts to get them tested at birth, we can now give their parents an option to get them treated. And then there are people like me and I was an emergency department nurse. I was a respiratory therapist. People coughed on me all the time. Mm -hmm. And when I got sick, I had the H1N1 influenza 10 years ago. And then I ended up with a staph pneumonia, which is not uncommon, took antibiotics, felt better, thought everything was fine. And then in a couple of weeks, I was sick again. And that happened four times. So my primary care doctor and I decided I needed to see a pulmonologist. So I went to a physician that I'd known for a long time. And over that winter, my lung function just kept going downhill. And a year after I had the first pneumonia, he finally talked me into having a a CT scan of my chest and it showed permanent damage in my right lung. And that's when he said, we need to look at your immune system. Hmm. So I was blessed that he thought of it within a year because statistically it takes about seven and a half years before doctors put it all together. Primarily because people who have repeated infections don't always go to the same doctor. So they're getting antibiotics from urgent care or they're getting antibiotics from their primary care doctor or their allergist. And they think they have bad sinuses. So it can be hard to put the whole picture together and recognize that this person's required antibiotics five times in a year, that needs a workup.
0: Bob, what was it like for you providing support for Pat during that really grueling process as she described it?
2: Yeah, it was a little stressful at times, Scott. Till we knew what the exact diagnosis was, um, which took about six months, didn't about, about six months, close to a year. Um, it was stressful. Um, she's very fatigued, you know, the appetite wasn't there. And the unknowns were worse than the knowns, you know, it's that not knowing was more stressful than mm-hmm. knowing if, if that makes sense, but mm-hmm. sure. it was a stressful period. Um, and of course, um, we, uh, I was uh, in teaching at that time and, you know, mm-hmm. having worked with a lot of special needs kids and a lot of kids with a lot of different disabilities, uh, developed a lot of patience uh, over the years and figuring that, you know, in time we would figure this out um, And and Pat having a medical background, sometimes it's a good thing, sometimes it's a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> because you you think sometimes you can overthink what's going on. And, and um, at times she was, you know, stressed herself and would kind of overthink things. And I would say, well, you know, it could just be a virus, who knows? And time worked itself out, but we worked through it. Um, and then once we knew the diagnosis, we went forward with our action plan, so.
1: And the nice thing was I had doctors that we... I had I, the pulmonary doctor I had known for 20 years um, because I'd worked with him when I was respiratory therapist before I even went to nursing school. So we had faith in the people that were taking care of me that they knew what they were doing and that they were, um, I, I didn't have to worry that they were missing big things.
0: Pat, you mentioned uh, this really important detail a moment ago about one of the difficulties, the time to diagnosis, um, which I'm thankful that for you it wasn't as long as what you pointed out as the median, which is over seven years, partially because people go to a variety of different doctors for different, you know, they, have, they go to specialists for things that, where they need specialized care, and that can lead to a, a problem of sharing of information across those different specialists. I just wanted to underline that point. Maybe you can give us a sense also, though, how prevalent this disease is in the population, maybe just in the United States. How common is it?
1: It's about one out of 1,200 people in the United States. And the problem is, at least, they, they estimate that at least half of the people we don't even know about because they haven't been diagnosed. But when they do the retrospective studies and look at people who were eventually diagnosed, they're figuring that it's about one in 1200, but we know about one in 2000. So um, the challenge, um, another uh effort that I'm working on is not only the people seeing specialists, but the people that don't have primary care physicians and people who don't have insurance. And they just go wherever they can, and there is no continuity of care. So those are people I really would like to figure out a way that we could reach out to, um, to let them know or to go through perhaps the community health centers. Um, Because there's, you know, the, there's the population with great insurance that go to specialists for everything, whether they need it or not. Then you've got the other end of people who or wait until they're really sick because they don't have access to care. And in either case, the problem is there isn't the continuity and the consistency of a primary caregiver.
0: Mm-hmm. So when, when I think of immune deficiency, of course, I think about um, HIV and I think also about cancer patients who are receiving chemotherapy or radiation therapy, which also suppresses their immune systems. In, in what ways um, w- would that be similar or different from what uh, patients with primary immunodeficiency suffer?
1: It's um, With HIV, it's a different part of the immune system. HIV is primarily the T cells, which is a specific type of white blood cell. And those are destroyed. In primary immune deficiency, we're looking at the immunoglobulins, which are proteins found in the plasma that make antibodies. So for us we can replace those immunoglobulins. In HIV, you can't replace the T-cells. So they now have the antiviral drugs. For people with cancer who are getting chemotherapy or people with autoimmune disease who are taking prednisone or those sorts of drugs, um, that's a a more global depression of all parts of the immune system, mm. but it's not permanent. So I now will need to get immunoglobulin infusions for the rest of my life. To, um, It's a, a life-sustaining therapy. Mm. And I went from getting a a six hour IV infusion once a month. And now I do an infusion with needles in my abdomen once a week. And um, it come, our immunoglobulins come from donors. And that's one, a new challenge with the pandemic because the donor population has dropped by 40%. So people who rely on plasma therapy, which is those of us with immune deficiency who have to infuse the immunoglobulin, people with hemophilia, people who have a condition called alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, When that protein is missing, your lungs age at a a very advanced rate. You get um, like you were a a four-pack-a-day smoker when you're 20. And there is a protein for neuromuscular disease that's also pulled out of the plasma. So for those four diseases, we are now looking at a shortage a year from now because it can't be made in a laboratory. So that's a new challenge that our community of rare diseases has, is trying to encourage people to be donors where there are donor uh, sites available But in Connecticut, for example, the rules were written in the 1980s before this therapy was available, and they are incredibly restrictive. So now we're trying to get legislation through to ease it up because companies are ready to build donor centers in Connecticut. They just Hmm. can't because of the restrictive laws.
0: just want to remind listeners that you're listening to COVID Calls, and we're talking today about primary immunodeficiency disease with my guests, Pat Carroll and Bob Carroll. And Pat, you were just um, beginning to tell us about some of the unique challenges of this time of COVID-19 for people who do suffer from um, one type or another of primary immunodeficiency disease. Let's just back up for a second, and I'd like to hear just a little bit from you both just about sort of how COVID-19 sort of entered your consciousness, if you can remember um, what that was like and what your first thoughts were in terms of the pandemic and how you thought it was going to change your lives, lives that have already been changed by having to deal with this disease yourself as uh, Pat and his family, and then also a group. So however, whichever you'd like to speak to that first, but I'd like to hear about that early. That if time.
1: I just may say, instead of saying people who, suffer from primary immune deficiency, it's people who are living with primary immune deficiency. Because, um, you know, if if I suffer from it, then it's a horrible thing. And why should I get up in the morning? Mm -hmm. So I like to think of it as living my best life with this disease. And that's how I try to work with the community that we've built through the support groups. so it's
0: a powerful it's a powerful reframing, uh, and I can see why you're a good advocate. so uh, with, <laughs> with, just to take that on board, and I appreciate that very much and and um, so for those living with it, and start with your own experience. <laughs> as you became aware of COVID-19, what did that mean to you? How did you begin to think of how you were gonna cope with that?
1: I knew we were in real trouble. Um, I am very much plugged in um, to what's going on in the world. I'm on every email list known to man, I think. And I'm also a member of the Association of Professionals in Infection Control. And when this, when the report started coming out of China, the infection prevention community knew that the data that was being released could not possibly be accurate. So, the um, potential for an epidemic was was there, and I personally took care of one of the index Legionnaires' disease patients before it was even called Legionnaires' disease, or we knew what it was.
2: I'm going to say 1983. No, that was references. in
1: 1976.
2: Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. There
1: was a convention in Philadelphia and the mm. people who attended came home sick. Mm. And we literally drew straws for who would take care of these critically ill. We had two critically ill patients because we didn't know what it was. There was nothing to treat it. So my heart is with my colleagues with COVID having been through that. um, So, and and, um, SARS, I knew nurses in Toronto who lived through the first SARS. Um, So I had an early eye on it and having an immune deficiency, I was scared to death because I didn't know what my options would be.
2: Yeah, it was stressful, Scott. It's uh, about 14 months ago, uh, back to last March of 2020, And what was so stressful for me was that, um, you know, once I got into education, I, you know, teachers, you become, you you develop a pretty good immune system, you know, being (laughs) around kids. And um, uh, the first year I was in teaching, I was so sick, you know, Scott, I had a cold that I had for a year. And then (laughs) Pat had said to me, you're building up your, your, your antibodies for all these viruses. And sure enough, you know, Scott, I haven't had <laughs> the flu or a cold since.
0: So Future teachers, take yet. note. Bob is giving you important information here that first year will <laughs> exactly. be ours. Yeah, go ahead.
2: No, Oh, it was just, um, it was, I oh. it was. we called it the elementary virus, ED. But um,
1: it's like the first year in the ER, same kind of thing.
2: <laughs> right. But once we got through that, but. But my biggest concern was, Scott, was that, you know, all the unknowns that um, I would go out, you know, do grocery shopping, run errands, um, do all the things outside of the home and come home. And you take off your mask, you wash your hands, and you're very conscious of, you know, keeping distance from people. And, and we kind of hunkered down. And it was it was just all the unknowns, you know. What my concern was was that could I be positive and not show the symptoms, and then pass it to Pat, you know? And I could even be tested and say, you know, be like a that a, test positive, but but have it and and pass it along. So that was the stressful part, you know. Was was those kind of you know that the transmission could be taking place without us knowing it. But, you know, we took precautions when, when I came home from being out out, uh, outside the home, Um, washed down pretty good. And, um, you know, there weren't any signs of coughing or wasn't feeling tired or, you know, run down at all. Um, I felt pretty confident that I was okay and that I wouldn't be at risk of passing anything to her but we took precautions you know we um we always made sure that um, you know something that was brought into the house maybe you know not everything was washed down but it was just like if you touched something immediately just kind of wash your hands and just those kind of things that it like a like a cold virus could be transmitted um if you touched a door handle and you touched another door handle so we were kind of pretty conscious like about wiping door handles down and, and the kitchen faucet and things of that nature. Um, and uh, it, was, it was always in the back of my mind that, that something could be happening. But, you know, you just kind of figured that if it something did happen, we would address it as we would address it when she was first diagnosed, you know, and just go through the process.
1: And the thing was that I we've been partners for more than 30 years. And sometimes I lean more on him, sometimes he's leaned more on me. And I just trusted him completely. It, it never entered my mind that he would expose himself and take a risk when he was out, that he would follow the rules and, and protect himself. And it wasn't for a couple of months that we actually had the discussion of how stressful it was on him. And uh, it broke my heart that I didn't appreciate that right up front because I have not been in a retail establishment since March 15th of last year. The only place I've been is to medical appointments. And I got the okay from my immunologist. This is my big week that um, I can start venturing out because the case rate is down. I'm immunized. We don't know whether my immune system will respond to the vaccine, but we gave it a shot. And I'm uh, he would like tell me what the supermarket's like because I couldn't figure out. How they use plexiglass
0: sure.
1: between a cashier and the customer, and, and I still haven't been out, so this is gonna be like you know, I, I just got out of jail, maybe you know. Oh, now let me see what the world right. is like.
2: But, um, she's been to some gas stations, Scott. When the car, when, we, when we've been out. To the doctor's <laughs> appointment, and and the, you know the car needs gas, so yeah,
0: <laughs> it is. It's like I can picture though. It, it's uh, this like reporting from an alien world. A Bob comes home and talks yes. about you know <laughs> what's, oh, exactly. what's at the supermarket now. Yeah, kind of like but let me,
2: you know, it's kind of like when the moon rocks came back to Earth and no one <laughs> <laughs> knew what to do with them.
0: <laughs> right, but but just so, uh, for my own, so I understand a little bit more. It, were these the kind of precautions that you already would have had in mind? since you had the diagnosis, Pat, um, you know, 10 years ago, these are not kind of precautions you would need to take on an ordinary basis to protect yourself because of the condition.
1: The fact that I give myself the infusions every week, um, resets my immune system. I see. So for example, four years ago I had a seven level spinal fusion and My surgeon, I had to really talk him into it, but um, he did not know what my risk of a post-op infection was. And my immunologist called him up and said, oh, she's fine because she's replacing it every week. So she has a really charged immune system. So you don't have to worry about her being at any greater risk than anyone else. It's the fact that nobody had antibodies to this novel virus Mm. that was so frightening. Because here's the interesting thing, a year, maybe 18 months from now, there will be antibodies to COVID-19 in my infusions because it comes from donors And the type of people who donate are the type of people who get vaccinated. And as it goes through the manufacturing process, they're going to start measuring levels of COVID antibodies, and they will make sure once they reach a critical mass that we will receive COVID antibodies in our regular infusions, just like we get tetanus antibodies,
0: Thank you for explaining that. It's really extraordinary, but it also underlines the importance for you to have that, you said weekly in yes. fusion. So then how were you able to maintain that very demanding schedule of medical appointments in the midst of the pandemic?
1: Um, by telephone. Um, I I had one one appointment in an office and I had blood drawn twice yeah. and I had a CT scan uh,
2: Dr.
1: and Bye. an X-ray of my foot. I broke my foot. Oh, I'm sorry. And um, I saw my eye doctor.
0: And so you do the injections there at home?
1: Yes. And she would see me at 7 a.m. before any other patients came in. Mm -hmm. so she would come in a half hour early to see me so I wouldn't be around other patients. I was really lucky.
2: Yeah, the physicians were very good, Scott, knowing um, that uh, she had a primary immune deficiency of, you know, either usually first patient in the morning, um, come in when it's not, the practice isn't busy, and, you know, the the staff isn't really all there either. Um, and very conscious of someone having it and the consequences of what could happen if things, you know, did conduct the got the virus and and they were great. They were, you know, small staff early in the morning, willing to accommodate their schedule for a patient with a compromised immune system.
1: And then if I needed to have blood drawn or an x-ray, Bob would go in first and say, Pat's out in the car. Will you call us when the place is empty? Because they would set appointments so that there were not groups of people in the waiting room. And they would, we'd go back, he'd come back out in the car and the phone would ring and I would just go straight into to either the x-ray table or the blood drawing station. Never had to sit in a waiting room. People were, people have been remarkable. I, I, I think mm-hmm. it is shown that if you give people a chance to make somebody else's life a little easier, they will take that opportunity. It has really, been an amazing experience in that regard, that people really get it. But what's interesting is they've um, picked up 60 people worldwide with a diagnosis of primary immune deficiency who have been hospitalized with a COVID-19 infection. Mm -hmm. Our outcomes are better than people with intact immune systems. And the thinking behind that is that what is um, causing the most severe lung disease is an overreaction of the immune system that starts to destroy the lung tissue. Well, our immune systems kind of sit back and don't get all hot and bothered. So where that's a problem in general everyday life, it's starting to look like with COVID, people whose immune systems are not functional or not normal functioning, are having much less severe disease. So that's let me exhale a little bit too. Um, There was a very interesting study in Europe where they went the other way and they looked at people who were critically ill and then examined their immune systems and they found a unique Deficiency that had not been described before in an, in a part of the immune system, so that may also play a role. Mm. But those of us with the 250 common variety immune deficiencies right. seem to be okay.
0: Well, I'm I'm glad to hear that. I'm I'm not a um, a physician or a scientist so i didn't have the training to understand at the level of what you're describing i've read some of the medical literature that i could in preparation for our discussion today i was fascinated to see the same thing you pointed out um and some of the other hypotheses about you know the rigor of infection control which is just part of your daily life um, as potentially a part of that as well but but it doesn't account for this other uh impact which is the stress that you and Bob were talking about uh, in not knowing. And so these these other these medical studies may be starting to come in now, but it's 14 months after, uh, 14 months of not knowing.
1: I'll take it. <laughs> you know- Fair enough,
0: I, fair enough. I,
1: I, you know, having a life-threatening chronic illness and coming to terms with that um the fights we used to have with insurance companies when they you know his employer would change the insurance company and they'd have to re-qualify me and because all of my levels were normal they'd say you don't need this treatment and he would go off the deep end as my, he was my my insurance warrior, um, because they don't understand that this. If I lose my therapy, it opens me up to, and to any kind of infection that a person with a normal immune system could fight off, but it could kill me, and that. We've been through that stress. So this stress was, I don't know, for me, it was more in my control. We just came to grips with the fact that, you know, we were in this house. We like our house. We have two lovely dogs. Um, And came to terms with the fact that I was going to be here for a while. And at least I had that control. I didn't have to go out, I you know, and I trusted him to take the precautions. We'd plan grocery trips um, every two weeks. He'd mm-hmm. go, he'd sneak in during old people hours. <laughs> When because the grocery stores would open early for old people to come
2: in. She's being kind, Scott. I was in the group. I was at the the lower end of the group, (laughs) but I was eligible.
1: (laughs) But but, and he would help all the little old ladies, you know, couldn't reach the top shelf. And but we had options. Mm -hmm. And as Mm -hmm. he said, the state was really on the ball.
2: Well, what was nice, Scott, was um in Connecticut, they had, they, uh, what Pat says, they, they did have times when seniors could go uh, to retail establishments, be it grocery, um, you know, hardware store, uh, wherever, um, a grocery store. And it would be like a, one or two mornings a week and it would just be that population. So the stores tended to not be as crowded Um, the staff in the stores were more attentive to the, to the clientele if they needed help. And like Pat said, it's a real collaborative effort. You know, it's really nice to see people helping other people, knowing that other people were in situations and, and all kidding aside, I, I did go a few times when, when the older population was, was shopping and you could just see the stress in these poor folks eyes, you know, that they had no one to no other way to get their groceries and, and they were just so, you could just feel that they were so stressed. Um, I, you know, I, it it checkout, I could see people leaving their wallets and leaving the checkbooks because they're just in such a hurry to get out of the store, you know, and the first few months you could feel that stress, you know, and, and, but people worked their way through it. And, um, you know, it was, um, one of the things that I found helpful was it got farther along in the process is when I went to certain places, I kind of knew the busy hours and the slower hours. And that was helpful. You didn't mm-hmm. feel you were exposing yourself as much. Or if I went to somewhere, you know, it's got, that was just very busy. I would just go another time um, mm-hmm. and just say, it's, it's just, while the first few months of the pandemic and all these, you know, statistics are being calculated and no one knows what's what, And you couldn't get toilet paper. And and (laughs) I just said, you know, we'll just wait, you know, um, we'll just do it another time. And you just kind of have to discipline yourself that there's things that you can't control and you just have to work around that and just kind of pick and choose when when the best time would be and kind of figure that out over time.
1: And now the scary part is that as of May 19th, Connecticut is no restrictions. Right. And boy, that scares me to death.
2: Well, she says no restrictions, Scott, but for example, uh, indoors, people still have to wear masks. And um, if you're like in a restaurant setting, you still have to maintain six feet of distance. So it's not like uh, the old days where you could have people a foot two, three feet apart at a table. It's, you know, you still have to maintain the distances But when she says full reopening, it's, it's to what they can, as much as they can accommodate within the six foot rule. So.
1: But they talk about if you're vaccinated, you can do this. If you're not vaccinated, you can't do this. Well, that means if I'm outside at the park and I, and we're walking the dogs and I am vaccinated, so technically I don't have to wear a mask. But how can I trust that the other people without masks are vaccinated? Or are right. they just so done with masks that they're like, I'm not going to wear it anymore. I can't stand mm-hmm. it. So that's, that's the scary part for me is this transition period now. Mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. that, I mean, I we would not go to a restaurant because mm-hmm. I' have to take the masks off to eat and drink. I'd go to takeout. But I would not feel comfortable at a restaurant, even if the tables are further apart. Mm-hmm. I, You know, that's a little... Because people. what do people do? They laugh and talk and, mm-hmm. you know, that's when air gets exchanged. Um, We did today, I actually bought theater tickets. There is a small theater that we've been members of and had season tickets and they are tiptoeing in with um, two seats removed, Mm-hmm. between every two seats. So um, we looked at the seating map and it's a small theater and they have four large doors and I called them up. They're going to leave the doors open and it has a, a huge high ceiling and there will only be two actors on stage. They've chosen two plays Mm -hmm. that only have two actors. Mm -hmm. So that's how we're going to start and see how it goes. Everybody has to wear a mask and except the actors. And I, that's the thing we missed the most was going to the theater. Um, That was our big um, treat to ourselves. You know, we weren't big going out to dinner people and, And, but going to the theater, these um, local theaters that we support, we have missed that terribly.
2: So, well, part of the the PI uh, issue with Pat having PI, Scott, and she brings a good point is about the some lifestyle changes in the last ten years. You know, because she does her infusion on Friday nights, so it's usually about forty-eight to seventy-two hours. She's a little logy appetite's not there, um, very tired, needs a couple, needs some naps. So, um, our weekend activity was, was altered back 10 years. So we kind of went on a different schedule and, um, so that part of it was, was kind of fixed in. So our weeknights, we used to go out a lot because of the weekends, you know, we were home for the Mm -hmm. weekends Mm -hmm. So that kind of, we just reversed things and that changed. So, but but she does bring up a good point. Now, even myself, you know, it's got not one who who has a primary a immune deficiency, but you know, I'm over 60 and and I say to myself, okay, I've gotten my second vaccine. And um, when we did get our second vaccine, we were also tested, you know, they were offering uh, the testing and we figured, well, you know, why not, you know, it doesn't mm-hmm. hurt. and And I just I wonder what, you know, when is the time going to be to take it off, you know, or ever take it off? And it's that's the unknown. And um, it'll be interesting to see. And like Pat says, now now we have to see the science go to work because um, every day the state issues a report as more and more establishments open and. Uh, crowds are larger, um, yeah. like, you know, they started with social gatherings at 25 and then 50 and then 100. And they will allow outdoor uh, engagements, outdoor weddings, um, family reunions. And they, they encourage, you know, people to be outside, not inside. And as the warmer weather comes, you know, June, July, August, the the summer months for our area, it'll be interesting to see. You know, the, the science will tell us what. Yeah what's happening
0: um just just to follow up on one one part of that um so is your assumption then pat that well you won't know what kind of protection the vaccine will give you um is your assumption that it will be less than others in the population and you'll be relying upon these infusions that you get to to make up that difference i mean i guess we're speculating here at this point what kind of guidance are you getting in that regard
1: uh, nobody knows <laughs> the guidance I got. For, Cause I asked my immunologist should, do you want to test me for antibodies? And she said we could, but we don't have tests to see if the antibodies work. Mm-hmm. So you may make antibodies just like you make immunoglobulin, but your immunoglobulins don't work. It doesn't work. So there's no point. So she was, um, she was pretty optimistic again, with Connecticut being so proactive and her recommendation to me was to think about it the way you would think about HIV. And she said, you know, back, um, Uh, And again, I'm old enough that I remember when we didn't know what was causing all these infections in primarily gay men and how it was transmitted and all. And um, she said, would you have unprotected sex? That's how you need to think about it. So if you're going to the theater, would you have unprotected sex with the person in the seat right next to you? And my answer would be no. (laughs) And she said, that's how I should be thinking about my potential exposure to people with COVID is how close am I to someone and do I trust them?
0: Just to remind folks that you're listening to COVID calls, and today I'm talking with Pat Carroll and Bob Carroll about living with primary immune deficiency in the time of COVID. We're almost up on time, but I did want to get to one more topic. Um, given your act, your activism with the uh, support group, and that's the Primary Immune Deficiency Foundation. I think is the national umbrella group, and you're active there as a coordinator for the Connecticut. Group. I wonder, could you just tell us um, what your activities have been um, with the group through COVID? And then I guess maybe if you'd extend that a little bit and talk about some of the ambitions, um, you know, what is that foundation trying to do? You mentioned at the top of our discussion, some advocacy, some policy advocacy. What What are the main goals of the organization?
1: Well, for our support group, we started um, meeting in person and Bob would come to every meeting. And once we got started, he would go down the street and get the best pizza in Connecticut. And the group was so thrilled that he would do that, you know, because technically it's supposed to be cookies. You know, but we said, hey, we're meeting in the evening. And because there aren't a lot of volunteers, we had people coming from Rhode Island and Western Massachusetts. And I couldn't have these people come for an evening meeting and not feed them. So that was how we started. And and Bob's been my partner in this. And every night as we would pack up, um, we would look at each other and say, you know, we changed somebody's life tonight. Because people would come who had just been diagnosed, had no idea what to do next. Um, People were just at their wits end. One woman's Husband left her because she was sick all the time. And and they didn't realize there were other people f- dealing with the same thing. So now we've gone virtual. We have our meetings on Zoom. And I was just um, emailing with the foundation today. And it looks like we're going to expand my reach for all of New England. We don't have anybody in the Boston area or further north. So um, on Zoom, I had a woman stop by because I wanted a meeting and the time worked for her. So that has been really wonderful to have the Zoom meetings as a way that we can stay connected. And um, most of the members of our group are pretty stoic. Every once in a while, we'll get somebody comes in who tells us we're being overcautious and and I have to kind of moderate that, but the core group is very supportive of one another. And I reach out if I know somebody's having a hard time. We had one woman who lost her husband, he was 53, and just died of a heart attack at work. And he did her infusions every week. Because she was afraid to stick her needles in. So here she is grieving the loss of her husband. And she didn't know how to give herself her own therapy. So my nursing background then kicks into gear. Mm -hmm. And I can connect her with the manufacturer that made her drug. I got her uh, one of their nurses to come in and hold your hand and make a video with the phone and you know so I look at it that everybody has some burden in their lives and this is the one that was chosen for me um, I don't I don't know if I would have picked it of but of all the things that are out there it's not the worst. And I am blessed to be able to help other people who have immune deficiency be their voice when they need one and help them get to the other side where they go from the diagnosis, my life is over. What's going to happen to me? And then they can come out on the other side Mm -hmm. where it's part of their routine. Like Bob Mm -hmm. said, Friday nights, I do my infusions. If we have theater tickets, well, then maybe I'll do my infusion on Saturday night. So I have that control. It's kind of nice, but I really feel blessed to be able to take This condition and do good with it.
0: And at the even in a pandemic, right. And at the broadest level, in terms of advocacy, um, what are the maybe one of the top one or two things that that need to change to support or to provide? um, The first thing
1: is removing the restrictions on plasma donation. They're just. Most of the restrictions are because the hospitals wanted to control it back in the 80s. And now the companies that manufacture the drug have the whole process automated. The FDA has very clear guidelines, and there's no reason for states to be more restrictive than the FDA, So that's a huge effort and to encourage people to become plasma donors. For anyone listening, if you just type plasma donor in Google, you can find if there is a donor um, facility near you. And if you are able to go donate, you sit in the chair for about an hour and a half. They pay you for your time. And we are eternally grateful for that time. The second thing is insurance issues, but primarily copay assistance. Because every company that manufactures the donor plasma also offers to cover our co-pays if we have a high deductible plan. And my deductible is sixty six thousand seven hundred dollars a year. And the drug company that manufactures my drug pays for that. Mm-hmm. And there are some states that have eliminated copay assistance being credited to your deductible because they claim that when drug companies help pay for drugs, it just drives the cost up and it's the cost, it's why drugs cost so much. But for those of us with these rare diseases, my medication costs $8,800 a month. And these drug companies are not making a lot of money on that. It's not a situation where there's a a generic drug that's inexpensive and a new brand name drug comes out that they want you to use And it's like they're giving you samples to get you hooked. Um, So we have been trying here in Connecticut for three years to get a a law that no insurance company writing policies in Connecticut can deny uh, the copay assistance going toward the deductible. And it's up for a vote in the Senate this week, and it looks really good. And I had a woman in my support group who got a new job, was all set. She was all excited till she got her first bill. And they said, oh, no, your your copay assistance, it doesn't count. And she was in tears because she couldn't afford the $7,000 deductible. So those are the two big things we're working on mm-hmm. now is making sure that people can get the support from the drug companies and have them count for their insurance. I mean, imagine a family with three kids and each child has to have right. this therapy at $8,000 a month. Right. So it's just a matter of. Uh, you know, it went. It was voted out of committee unanimously because I wrote to every single person on the committee to explain how this is different, and they all appreciated that. So again, it's all about education and awareness. Just like we started off talking about m- getting the doctor's aware to start thinking, maybe this person doesn't just have bad sinuses, maybe they have a primary immune deficiency. And also for anyone who's watching or listening, if you have repeated infections that have required antibiotics more than two to three times a year, you should ask your doctor For a simple blood test, that's where you can start to see if you may have an undiagnosed primary immune deficiency.
0: So just reminding folks, you've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can catch COVID Calls most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time, and most Fridays at 5.30 p.m. Korea time, and join me tomorrow at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time for another COVID Calls episode. I want to thank My guests today, Pat Carroll and Bob Carroll, for talking about primary immunodeficiency and what it's been like to live with that and to advocate uh, during time of COVID-19. This has been an illuminating conversation for me. I appreciate your generosity of time and, and sharing your own story, and it's been great to meet you. Thanks for coming on COVID Calls today. You're
1: welcome. Thank you for having us.
0: Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow, 5.30.